You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. You may be seated. If you've got your Bibles, uh, turn to Psalm 23, I mean, no, Psalm 32. Uh, That's where we're going to be this morning. We are in a study in the life of David. And uh, one of the things that we, there are things that we've said about David. He uh, was a shepherd boy. He's the youngest of Jesse's sons. He uh, is a warrior who slayed Goliath and then led armies against the Philistines and, and the other enemies. He is the king. He is the one whom God made an eternal and everlasting covenant with, that there should be no end to his reign. But one of the things about David is that he is also a psalmist. He is one who writes from the very depths of his heart and his soul. See, the life of David, the story of David, we find that in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. We've been looking through those books over the last several weeks, and, and they're the um, record of events of his life. And it's not merely biography. We said at the very beginning, it's, it's theological accounting of David's life. So it's not just about David, it's about who David's God is. And so we've been looking at all of that, and, and yet that record, those stories, that history tells us what's going on on the outside. Tells us about David as he goes out to the battlefield and he slays Goliath. And it tells us about when he's on the run from Saul and, and, and then the moments when he brings the Ark of the Covenant into the, uh, to Jerusalem and, and, um, and, and when God comes through the prophet Nathan to make an everlasting and eternal come. We've seen all of those events of his life And in the Psalms, we get a glimpse into the heart of the man who is said to have a heart uh, like God, a man after God's own heart. The reason we're in Psalm 32 this morning is because where we are in the story of David is David's great crash and burn. In fact, in, uh, during the Christmas season, during Advent, we actually looked at this story. We did about three months ago on December the 17th, and we talked about the episode with Bathsheba, known as the wife of Uriah, as we were looking at the genealogy of Jesus. And so I'll briefly remind us of the story, but really what I want to do is I want to again now go and see not just the events that took place, but I want to see what was going on in David's heart as a result of those events. You know, a human uh, psychologist, Frederick Pearls, said that he could cure all psychopathology in one hour if he could get his clients to not feel guilty. That's what I want to talk about this morning. Guilt and confession and forgiveness. One, 
writers said, old writers said that as sand is to the eye, so guilt is to the soul. And by design, by our very design, God has hardwired us with a conscience. I mean, you, you don't even need to read the Bible to know that God's hardwired us with a conscience. You experience that. And everyone has a conscience. And, and even though, so those whose, whose conscience, as we look and say, well, their conscience is, is seared, and they seem to have no conscience, well, we have a word for that as well. It's, it's a sociopath. It's not normal. If you were alive... In 1965, probably not many of you were, but there's an old movie. It starred um, Joan Crawford, and she played opposite a guy, an actor of the day, uh, John Ireland. And and if you were to go look at this old uh, movie and from 1965, you can still see the trailer on, on YouTube, and it, it begins this way. There's a rotary phone sitting there on the desk, you know, the kind, you know, um, you, you explain it to your kids later, but, it, you know, where the, the deals go around. And there's this loud ringing from the phone. And you hear the, the voiceover, the man says, don't answer it. And then there's another phone and it rings and you hear, don't answer it. And there's another phone and it rings, don't answer it. And then it says, every one of us, all our names are written in the book. And then it shows these two teenage girls opening a phone book. And they have randomly prank called a person, a man, who answers the phone. And they say to him, we know who you are and we saw what you did. Unbeknownst to them, he had just killed his wife while he was entertaining his neighbor. And, and the rest of the movie, I mean, it's two girls prank calling. I know who you are. I saw what you did. And, and, the, and it's this crime drama that unfolds. It begins with a prank phone call, and it reveals this universal condition called guilt. I mean, imagine this morning if we had the technology to say, listen, I know who you are. I saw what you did. This weekend. In fact, we've got a 90-second clip of it that, you know, talk about the rapture. Nobody'd show up after that. But the tension of the movie is 90 minutes of a man trying to silence his accusers. When you look at the story of David with Bathsheba in 1 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, it's very much the same story. It begins by telling us in second, I mean, Second Samuel 11 that David, it's springtime, and it's the time the kings go to war, and he sends Joab and his army off to fight the Ammonites, but David doesn't go this time, he stays, and then the next scene, we find him taking a nap on his couch, he gets up in the afternoon, walks along the rooftop, and he sees his neighbor Bathsheba bathing. One thing leads to another, and he has an affair with Bathsheba, and she becomes pregnant, and then he kills her husband, Uriah, which is one of his mighty men, one of his great friends. 
And a cover-up ensues that takes place for almost a year. And Nathan, who is the prophet, Nathan the prophet who brought the covenant of the everlasting God to David, Nathan the prophet goes to David wondering, how do you go to a king and accuse him of his guilt? How do you go to a man who's the most powerful person in the known world at the time and tell him, hey, listen, you're wrong. And so he comes to him with a parable tells him a story about a rich man and a poor man, and David becomes angry about the injustice of the rich man, and then David says to him, you're the man. I know who you are, and I saw what you did. David will confess. He finds himself broken. The strategy of Nathan succeeds. And then what you have is David will write two psalms. The first psalm he writes is Psalm 51. It's a beautiful psalm. It deserves our attention some Sunday morning. It's the psalm he writes nearest to the event, nearest to being outed by David. And it is a psalm of confession, and it is is beautiful. And then what will happen is some time will pass, And David will then write another psalm about the event, and that's Psalm 32. And in Psalm 32, it begins that if you've got your Bibles open, it begins, there's a subscript at the very beginning of it. It says, a mascal of David. Now, we don't exactly know what the word mascal means, but it's very likely it means something like a teaching on wisdom. David's had some distance, he's looking back at the event, and now what he's doing is he seeks to instruct us, he he seeks to teach us what it is that he has learned. There are three images in the psalm that I want to talk through this morning. One is the image of the effects of unconfessed sin. Secondly is the image of the safety and the relief that comes with confession. And the third image David gives us is this image of a warning. Listen, if you don't heed this teaching, if you don't heed this instruction, there are implications for you. Listen, as we look at this psalm, David very much doesn't want us to commit adultery. He doesn't want us to commit murder. He doesn't, I mean, six out of the ten commandments David breaks in this episode of this year. He certainly doesn't want us to do those things. David would be the first to say, don't do those things. And as much as he doesn't want us to do those things, he doesn't want us to be people who go without confessing the sin in our life. So look with me in in verses 1 and 2. It opens up this way. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The very first thing you know is this word blessed. And maybe it is probably better for us to translate it as happy is the man. It's how the whole Psalms begin. Psalm Chapter 1, the very doorway into it, blessed is man who doesn't walk in the council of sinners and sit in the seat of scoffers. Blessed is man. Happy is the man. You want to be happy? This is how you're happy. I mean, happiness, it is a, it is a pursuit, I think, 
God-given inside of us that this desire to be happy, to know joy. We, we, we want to be people that are happy and pursue happiness. You know, I think, though, we, sometimes we're, we're underwhelmed by how shocking the Bible really is because we already know what it's going to say. It's going to say a bunch of Bible stuff, right? Happy is the man who does a bunch of Bible stuff. We get it. But, I mean, we ought to hear this this morning. We ought to be kind of shocked, particularly as we contrast how happiness is viewed and pursued and sold to us in our culture and every culture before us. I mean, happiness is, is a good desire. How we get to happiness, though. We should hear what David has to say. So he is his opening thesis. We, we, we want to be happy. We want to pursue happiness. Here's how happiness works. He uses three words, transgression, sin, and iniquity. These three words sum up the human condition. They sum up how you came into this world. Transgression is rebellion against God. Sin is this word, it means to miss the mark, but it is in relation to God's holy law, His perfection, His holiness. We miss the mark of who God is. We don't live up to who God is. And then there's iniquity. And iniquity means there is this inner corruption, this inner crookedness. It means we're broken inside. And then he talks about three words. Transgressions forgiven, sin covered, and iniquity not counted. Forgiveness, I want you to think about, here, here is what David means when he uses this word forgiveness. It means to, to lift off, to, to lift away. My daughter, Catherine, a couple years ago, she was still in elementary school, and they didn't have lockers at the elementary school, and so she had this giant backpack, you know, all the, all the kids did. This giant backpack that's almost as big as her and weighed almost as much as she did with all of her stuff into it. And sometimes, some afternoons, I got to go pick her up from school and I'd pick her up from school and she'd come. And I'd give her a little hug and kiss because I'm a good dad. And then um, what, I, what I'd do is I'd reach around and there's a little latch on top of that uh, backpack and I'd reach up and grab it and just pick it right off, just lift it right off of her. Lift that heavy weight off of her. That's the idea in forgiveness. Covered means to atone. We'll talk about that a little more in a minute. And then does not count. It's a bookkeeping term, like a ledger, a computing term. It's, it's not counted against you. It's not counted on you. It, it's, not, it's not a part of your record. Happy are you if you know forgiveness and to be covered and to not have it counted against you. And, and then he goes on, there's no deceit in spirit, it's honest. There's nothing in the closet, you don't leave anything in the junk drawer. You're rightly related to God and we, we'll come back to this. But that's happiness. No, notice the opposite, that this is the... This is David's experience, this is sort of his story. Look at verse 3, for when I kept silent... My bones wasted away 
through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. When I kept silent. And day and night your hand was heavy on me. The, the image is dry, you know, strength dried up as, as by the heat of summer. The, the, the effect of sin unconfessed. Your energy is gone. You, you're just a shell. Your, your joy is gone. The life, life is stolen from you. You, you know the, did you read in high school the, um, Edgar Allan Poe's Telltale Heart. It's a short little poem, and it's, it's brilliant. It's about this guy. You don't know anything about him, but you do find out that he is, he is um, he's wrestling with these two things. One is, I, I, am I insane? Am I going mad? What is wrong with me? And all the while, he's telling you how he has committed the perfect crime. He has killed an old man. He's not just killed him. He's dismembered him. He's not just dismembered him. He's dismembered him, and he's buried him under the planks of his floor. The perfect crime. Nobody's ever going to know. And, and yet he feels like he is losing his mind. He is losing touch with reality. And, and, he, and he's hearing things. And, and yet all the while, so the police come in and they're doing the investigation. They can't find anything. And, he, and he's wrestling this whole time until he can't take it anymore. And at the very end, he shouts his confession. I did it. I killed him. I did it. It's the only way he could find Relief. Guilt is destructive, David is saying. It's destructive and it's secret and it's hidden and it's toxic to your soul. And, you know, as we said earlier, like, like sand is to the eye, so is guilt to the soul. And you have to, you have to get it out. You, you, it, it makes it irritated and it hurts and there's pain and you can't go on. And yet there are all these strategies we use to try to get rid of guilt. I'll go through a few of them. One is to rationalize, is to tell ourselves it's not really, well, it wasn't really wrong. I mean, and sometimes we compare ourselves to others and we say, well, it wasn't as bad as what old such and such did or what old so-and-so's doing. We, we, um, we try to ignore it. We, we, we hope it goes away. We, we, we never let it get quiet. We, we try to escape. I, I, I'll tell you, I, I am convinced that one of the reasons, like Netflix and Hulu and, and the binge watching, has been s- such a thing in our culture, is because we are a people desperate to escape. Another thing we do is we criticize or gossip, we shift attention. You know, when the subject of our conversations and thoughts are dominated by the criticism of others and what they do wrong and the sin they have and the way they live and the way they act, and or we blame. We blame others or we shift blame and we Try to convince ourselves, look, it's not our fault. I mean, you don't, you don't know my mom or, or my dad or the situation I 
I grew up. I mean, you don't understand. Or some will go about trying to make vows. They, they may even bow their heads and they would close their eyes and they would say things in a language that sounds a lot like prayer. I'll never, never, never again. I'll never, never do this again or, or never have that thought again or you conjure up a resolve. There's another way people do it is they try to, they try to pay it away. So there's sort of guilt and giving. Which, by the way, let me say, uh, we totally accept guilt offerings here at Bethel. If you, you know, feel like you want to try to buy that away, um, we encourage that up to a point. And um, I'm just kidding. I worked for a season um, in a working for a funeral home, you might think, gosh, you sure did a lot of things. I was like, yeah, well, I was really desperate for money, you know. So uh, when I was in graduate school, I worked for a season at uh, a funeral home. And most of the time I, I sold, it was just a sales job. You sold prearranged funerals and you, you sold, you know, cemetery plots and, you know, you helped people plan for the future. But every, you know, once a week or once every couple of weeks, depending on the schedule, you were the guy that received the people that were coming in on, on the day where a loved one has passed away and now they've got to come to the funeral home and they haven't done anything before, but they come to make their arrangements. And I saw several times, more than I would have imagined or wanted to, and you've probably seen it too, where someone will come in, a a mom or a dad has died and you've got an estranged son or daughter that lives away and they've, the relationship has been tense or broken and they never got to reconcile that relationship and ne- never, never took the time and never did all those things and now here they are and trying to say goodbye and looking for closure and the only way that they know to do it, the only way that they seem that they can do it is just write the biggest check they can. By the most expensive coffin or casket that they can. But I mean, just, just anything I can do. That's trying to, to buy your guilt away. There's penance. People will do penance. They will say, you know what? I am going to... And then you list all of these very... Um, what the what the the, the, old, the high church would call pious things. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna get my myself together. I'm gonna you know sit up straight. I'm gonna fly right. I'm you know, or they punish themselves. And if I if I can just punish myself severely enough and long enough, maybe it'll go away. One writer said it this way, See, so much of your anger is really guilt. So much of your shame is really guilt. So much of your drive is really guilt. So much of your shyness is really guilt. So much of your bitterness, so much of your cynicism, so much that drives you is really your way of dealing with guilt. 
So how are you going to deal with it? See, the reason our strategies don't work is because they cannot take sin away. They cannot cover over sin. They cannot keep sin from being counted to our record. There is only one thing that can do this, and that is repentance. Which is why notice the the pauses here in the psalm. At the end of verse 4, do you see it? It's written in in, in, uh, italics and... Olivia read it as she was reading this morning. Selah. We don't know exactly what Selah means. It may not mean anything. It may just be one of those uh, breaks like in a musical interlude. It's, it's meant for you to pause and to reflect. So, so let this soak in. Feel the reality of this. Your strategy won't work. So what does work? Well, here's the image, the second image that he gives us. Look at uh, verse 5. He says, I acknowledge, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush is in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. In in verse 5 there's the confession and it's a complete Confession. I acknowledged it to you. I didn't cover over every anything. And then there's forgiveness. You forgave the guilt of my sin. And then here's the instruction. Here's the image. There's this drowning in guilt image. That the water's coming. And, and, and this hiding place. It was protection. It was covering. You know where else that word is used? This hiding word is used. It's used in Genesis Chapter 3, verse 8, when Adam and Eve hid themselves from God. They, they hid themselves, and it means just that. They, they tried to cover over themselves. They, they, beforehand, before sin, they, they were naked, and they didn't know it. They, they, they were morally beautiful. They, they, there was nothing to be ashamed of, and then sin enters it, and all of a sudden, everything changed, although nothing changed. But they did, and, they, and they, they had this need to cover themselves in front of each other and to hide from God. And so they go to the latest fig leaf fashion. Because guilt and shame were overwhelming them. Tim Keller makes a great point here. He says, if you cover yourself. He's saying this. God says this. If you cover yourself, I'll never be able to cover you. If you're willing to uncover yourself, if you're willing to be naked to me again, if you're willing to show me your sin and admit it and make no excuses, then I will really truly cover you again. 
But if you cover yourself, I'll have to expose you. If you expose yourself, I will cover you. If you expose yourself, I'll cover you. I'll make, make you beautiful again. I'll give you back the beauty. You won't have to spend the rest of your life trying to cover, trying to deal with the deep sense of shame. And the reason is, and if you don't know this word, write this word down. It is, it is theologically so important to your understanding of who God is. And the word is imputation. You find it in verse 2. The Hebrew form of it. Where it says the Lord counts no iniquity. It, it, it doesn't go to your account. It, it, the imputation. There are three imputations in the Bible. And you need to know what they are. The very first one is the imputation of Adam's sin, original sin, the sin of mankind, onto you. You are born a sinner. You, you aren't born morally neutral, and then in the third grade, you know, somebody talked you into doing something bad, and then all of a sudden you became a sinner. You're born that way. You're born as a rebel. You're born shaking your fist at God because sin has been imputed to you. Sin has been counted to you. You are a part of the human condition and suffer from the human condition called sin. Then you, you make your own contribution to that as you live your life. See, th this is why Paul, a millennial later, millennia later, in Romans chapter 4, will quote this verse. The second imputation is the one where 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way, that he, that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. That's the second one. That God took the sin of mankind, took your sin and took my sin, and took it out of our account and credited it to Jesus' account. He imputed that sin, our sin, my sin, your sin, to Jesus. That's the second imputation. And the third one, the third imputation, the third reckoning is how that verse ends. That God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin. So that we might be made the righteousness of God. All that was in your account gets put in Jesus' account. And all that's in Jesus' account gets put in your account. That's the third great imputation. You are covered and credited with and reckoned with all that Jesus is. It does not mean that sin is undone as if it never happened. 
it goes away from you. It goes off of your record. But the way it goes off your record is it gets transferred to another's record. It goes to Jesus. Someone else becomes guilty for what you did. And not just metaphorically, but literally. Your sin is transferred to Jesus. It, the covering, it's not a cover-up. Jesus is clothed with our sin. Stripped naked to hang on a cross. You would say, why, why is it so important that that details in the Gospels that he's stripped naked? We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. You know why? He stripped naked to be clothed in our sin. And we in turn get covered in His moral beauty and perfection and He is our hiding place. Selah. So then David picks up in verse 8. I'll instruct you and I'll teach you in the way you should go. This, this relates to Psalm 51 that he wrote earlier because he told God, I'm, I'm going to teach people about this. They have to know. I'll instruct you and I'll teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle. Or it will not stay near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. And shout for joy. All you upright in heart. God's a good teacher and He loves His students. And His image is of a student that won't learn. He's despised, you know, feels... He's not despised by the teacher. It feels that way. But, but the teacher sees more in the student and, and the damage the student causes to himself. So extreme measures get... Don't be like a horse. Don't be like a mule. Don't, don't be stubborn and prideful. Come and confess. And he tells us how to do it. Verse 2, he said, look, with no deceit, honest with yourself, no more self-deceiving, ask the Holy Spirit and God's Word to examine you. That there'd be no deceit in you. In verses 3 and 4, come to terms with the danger of sin and the deficiency of your strategies to try to cover up your sin and to cover up your guilt, you, you confess it. Listen, repentance is the language of the believer. Repentance is the language of the believer. I think sometimes we think of repentance and we think about it like this. You know, I mean, you know, before I was saved, I was really bad and I did a lot of bad stuff. I mean, before I was saved at six years old, 
I did a bunch of really bad stuff. I was almost in a biker gang, you know. I mean, that's kind of how we think about it, that, that, the, that the bad sin, the bad stuff, the, the confessing stuff, the, the, the sin in our life, I mean, that's before we were saved, man. We all want a great testimony about that. But let me tell you what is absolutely frightening. Do you know when this takes place in David's life? After God has come and said, David... You're a man after my own heart, David. You're the king of Israel, David. I am making an everlasting, eternal covenant with you, and I love you, and I will love your son after you, and there will be one who sits on the Davidic throne, the Davidic throne forever. Then David says, who am I that you you would Keep grace upon grace. You know when this comes? After that. If your theology doesn't allow for you to believe that your greatest fall, your greatest sin, your greatest iniquity might be in front of you as a believer and not behind you, you have a faulty theology. And you do not understand the grace of God. Now let me also say this. If you hear that and you say, oh, well, my biggest sin may be in front of me and So I just need a better understanding of grace. So I can leave here and go do whatever I want. That's what he said. And I am saying, that is not what I said. Well, it may be in front of you and you may experience God's grace in ways you never imagined you'd ever have to. But if your first thought this morning is, oh, well, that means I can walk out of here and I have the license to sin, then let me say, if that is what you heard, it may very well be. You're not a believer. And that you don't understand the grace of God. Because to hear that and to see that and to witness David's heart unfold in the Psalms, it actually ought to bring us to great humility and great dependence upon God because we will never not for a single breath, not need him. But if and when you find yourself there, real confession is for sin, not merely the consequences or the sorrow of sin. Verse 5, don't leave anything buried. No part of your life can be off limits or locked away tells us to hide in God. To come completely uncovered, naked, exposed before Him, and then hide in Him, come to Him for covering in vulnerability. Vulnerability means to be exposed so that you can be covered. And it is a risk of faith. It is believing. Listen, it is believing His promise to forgive and to justify based 
Not on what you have done, but on what Jesus has done. 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, you come believing He's faithful and just to forgive you of those sins. He says at the end of verse 10, those who trust in the Lord, you have to come believing Like my kids, when they were going to jump off the diving board, you know, and you're there treading water, and you're like, just jump, I got you, jump, you know? But you better hurry. It's believing He will not fail you. And believing, believing that God forgets. Accepting his invitation to forget. You are invited into the forgetting. And that is great news. So it doesn't mean you are saved from the consequences on this planet in time and space of your sin. But you have the promise that God forgets. And you say, well, wait a minute, I thought God's omniscient. How does God forget? I'll tell you how he forgets. He chooses to forget. As far as the east is from the west, you're separated from that sin. He he will never bring it up again. You're invited into his forgetting. Then in verses 10 and 11, don't miss joy, joy, joy. Down deep in my heart. So joy's the goal. I mean, as much as this is a psalm about confession, it is a psalm about joy. How are you happy and how do you experience maximum joy? Maybe you don't know that. Maybe your view is not a view of a joyful God seeking to restore the joy of whom He loves. We have this idea, maybe you have this idea that it is an angry God who awaits you in confession. An angry God who's ready to try the case. An angry God who's ready to condemn. And I'll tell you, that's not who we have. It is a God full of joy. Desiring to restore your joy. And if you want to know how God receives our confession, we just have to look to Jesus. The woman at the well in John 4, he has this conversation with her and brings up all her stuff. She's totally exposed. She runs back to the village. You know what she says? I met a man who told me everything about me, everything I ever did. She was free. You know what all the townspeople did? They went looking for Jesus. There's a parable about the two praying on the temple mount, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the humble, repentant, sinful tax collector. He went home justified and happy. Where there's Peter after he denies Jesus and quits as an apostle. John 21, he goes back to fishing and he's on a fishing boat because he can't imagine 
Because of what he's done, he's running from his guilt that he could ever be used again. And all of a sudden, Jesus is on the shore and he yells out, Hey, cast your net over to the other side. And Peter thinks, could it be? You know what the text says? He threw himself into the sea and swam ashore to meet Jesus. And all we have to do is look to Jesus on the cross. Stripped naked, clothed in your sin and mine. Being mocked, enduring shame. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they You see God's heart in His Son. We see His love for the humble and the broken, and we see His embrace of all those that come to Him, that hide in Him, that find their covering in Him. I'll say pastorally to you this morning, stop running and rationalizing and escaping and come to Him. Know the happiness and the joy restored by the God of joy as you open your heart in confession to Him. Would you, would you bow with me as we pray? Father, I We hear this psalm of David, this teaching of David after the fact.